Welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast, insights and ideas for RIAs presented by Dynasty Financial Partners, a podcast dedicated to sharing some of the best practices, fresh thinking, and new perspectives in the independent wealth management industry. Your host for today's episode is Ed Friedman, Director at Dynasty Financial Partners. Welcome to Dynasty's Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Ed Friedman, and the topic that we're going to be delving into today is Women on Wall Street, When Socks Tell a Story, and we'll come back to that title in a minute and give you a little bit of an explanation. But over my 30 years on Wall Street, it's become quite clear to me that we have an issue, and I think that is a diversity issue. And I'm not sure whether it is a supply or demand issue. I don't know if we are just, as an industry, not making ourselves attractive to women, or if it's a demand issue, meaning women just aren't thinking about our business on a large enough scale to be attracted uh, to the industry. I happen to believe that it's the former issue, that we're not doing as an industry a good enough job attracting women and making ourselves attractive to women as a career. But to help me unpack that issue today, we have a fabulous group of panelists, and I'd like to introduce them. First, we have Sally Cates. Sally is Director of Public Relations and Communications at Dynasty Financial Partners. Sally is a senior communications leader in the wealth management industry, having started her career at CBS News and ultimately led global communications at Citigroup for 11 years prior to joining Dynasty. So, Sally, good morning and welcome. Happy to be here. Next, we have Kathy Saunders. Kathy is a managing director at Putnam Investments and is the head of the Client Engagement Center, leading Putnam's innovative, client-centric internal consulting team. Most recently, Kathy was the head of Putnam's RIA business. We also have, and I'm thrilled to have with us, Michelle Smith. Michelle began her Wall Street career as a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch and is currently the founder and CEO of Source Financial Advisors based right here in New York City. Michelle is also a certified divorce financial analyst and is considered one of the top divorce specialists in the country. Michelle is also the creator of the Wife to CEO educational program and is also co-founder of the Ideal School and Academy, the first only independent inclusion school in New York City. So, Michelle, welcome. Great to be here. And we also have, last but not least, Penny Phillips. Penny, after a decade of working with financial advisors and institutions on practice management, Penny is quickly becoming one of the most sought-after consultants and keynote speakers in the wealth management industry. Penny is the founder of Thrivos Consulting, and prior to starting her own coaching and consulting firm, Penny developed the practice management program at New York Life and worked in similar capacity at InvestNet. So, Penny, good morning. Thanks. I'm going to actually, Penny, first turn to you because you have a direct connection to our title uh, today, Women on Wall Street When Socks Tell a Story. Um, And to kind of tee that up, and I'm going to turn it over to Penny in a second, we were running a program, interestingly enough, at Putnam's offices up in Boston a little while back, and I was fortunate enough to have dinner with uh, Penny the night before, as well as a gentleman by the name of Jed Moore from Putnam, and I was talking with Penny about this issue. Do we really have a problem on Wall Street? Is it an old boys network first? And Penny uh, very quickly said, yes, it is. And we'll get into that in a little bit. And then we had a really great discussion about what it might take to change. And and, uh, we'll touch on those topics in a little bit. Well, the next morning when I was presenting at this program, I actually recounted our discussion at dinner 
and really relayed the story about whether we're still an old boys network and what it's going to take to change. And at the end of that, um, I turned it over to Penny for her presentation. And one of our co-sponsors for the event uh, at all of the programs gives out as swag um, a very interesting item. I'll just leave it at that. And from here, I'm going to turn it over to Penny to fill it, finish the discussion. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Ed. Um, honored to be here. It, you know, I never would have thought that that one moment in time would spark this panel and such an interesting discussion around women in the industry. So, I, you know, I'd done my presentation and we had had that great conversation the night before about women and the diversity issue in our industry. And I was looking down at this tchotchke that, the, you know, the, the partner firm was handing out for the event. And, you know, in that moment, uh, you know me, I can kind of speak off the cuff sometimes. I, I lifted that item and it was a pair of men's dress socks, a really nice pair of socks, by the way. And, uh, you know, I lifted them up to the audience and that was, I believe, all male except for one lovely uh, lady in the back. And I said, you know, if if you want more women to see themselves in this industry, if you want them to imagine their career pathway here, then you may want to start uh, marketing some of your items to be more women friendly. These are men's dress socks. I could never wear these socks. The other lovely lady in the room, um, she's probably never going to wear these socks either. And so it's not just that women don't view themselves in this career path. I think it's, uh, you know, subconsciously, some of the leaders of these organizations don't see women as their clients or leaders in their organizations either. And that's kind of the issue. And then I dropped the mic or the socks <laughs> and, and walked off. And by the way, I mentioned this to you earlier. I still have the socks. I told you I was going to give them to my father, but I'm, I'm going to keep them now as a as a uh, trophy. Well, thank and thank you for sharing the story. I mean, just for the record, I love the socks um, and look <laughs> forward nice to the program because <laughs> I wanted another pair. But it wasn't and until you're a middle aged white male. <laughs> well, okay. Thank you very much. Yes, <laughs> our listeners can't tell that, but thank you. Um, but you're you're point that you made I thought was so poignant and kind of encapsulated what we're going to be talking about because while I really did kind of look forward to the stocks and I have multiple pairs uh, of them and, and collect the leftovers at every one of the programs, it never hit me that the message right. that it was sending, the subliminal message, that's right. and that's the broader discussion, is is that the message that we're still um, sending and how do we kind of, of change that? So, Kathy, turning to you, I, I think you're journey, if you will, to Wall Street was, was kind of interesting because when we were talking about this um, earlier, um, where you started your career and how you got to Putnam, and you spent your entire career on Wall Street at Putnam, if you could kind of tell that story, because I think it also touches on how the world has changed in that time frame. Absolutely. Well, first off, I'll mirror what Penny said, and it's it's great to be here. No offense, Ed, but, and to any of the, the panelists here this morning, but uh, my career goal has 
been to put podcasts and events like this out of business. And my hope that this is that this one is one additional step forward in, in towards that goal, that's for sure. But I never pictured myself on Wall Street, actually. But uh, back in the early 80s, after I graduated from college, and keep in mind, it was a very different economic time at, at that moment. The Dow Jones was somewhere around 1,500, if I'm not mistaken. A few of us in the room will remember that. Interest rates were at double digits, unemployment uh, even higher than that. We couldn't be in a more different uh, arena from a market perspective now. But I worked for a company by the name of Western Union Electronic Mail, and our job was to uh, market overnight mailgrams, which, by the way, at that time was a technology. doesn't seem like a, much of a technology today. But it just so happened that uh, my responsibility was to call on financial firms and technology firms inside 128, which is the the road that circles the urban area in Boston. Putnam actually was one of my clients, and I might add for any of the Putnam people who might listen to this podcast, they gave me absolutely no business at all, but I had maintained a relationship (laughs) with a gentleman who headed our marketing and communications area. They had a fire in their building, which was tragic, actually, and they called me because we were experts at Western Union on on uh, crisis communications. So I finally, they called me after I was dripping on them for years and years and years, called me into a room and I did a presentation. Uh, they waved me in and it, just as I, I entered the room, they said, Kathy, thanks so much. This is a Sunday night, by the way. I had commuted in about 45 minutes to get there. I walked into a room, all men, by the way, dressed in casual clothes, drinking Cokes, eating some refreshments and that type of thing. When I walked in the room, they said, Kathy, you know what? We made a decision to go with your competitor, MCI, at the time. And I said, you know what? I can understand that, but tell you what, give me five minutes. Let me give you a quick presentation and uh, see if there's any opportunity here. So I delivered a presentation. I told them about some of the projects we had done in the past. Some of you might remember the Tylenol recall, which we were responsible for. We executed on that. So I literally did a five-minute presentation, said, can I have your business? And they said, absolutely. And I was so stunned. I had never written an order for as much as I'd gotten out of the room that day. And when I walked out of the room, um, a guy came up to me and said, would you like to work at, ever want to work at Putnam? And I said, not after this order, that's for sure. (laughs) But uh, as it turned out, they came and and recruited me. The people in that room were the CEO and other operating committee members. If I had known that, I would have been petrified, so I'm glad I didn't. But I started working, and they said very, um, very quickly, if you make a commitment to us, we'll make a commitment to you. That was 32 years ago, and it's been a great journey. So That's incredible. And uh, for half of our audience, they probably don't even know what a telegram is or an electronic gram um, in this day and age of communication. So a lot has changed in those 32 years. From your perspective and vantage point, have you seen a change in our industry in particular as it relates to diversity and and the views, if you will, and, and where do we have to go? I have, and I know this is going to be a very spirited uh, conversation, and I would just start up by saying that as it relates to diversity overall, it doesn't take too long of a walk outside of your house to run into bias of some sort, right? Whether it's out in the, your community, whether it's in the workplace or, or what have you. Um, but I do think that our industry has changed quite a bit in this domain. And by the way, we aren't the only industry that faces this challenge. You can go to Silicon Valley, you can go to banking, you can go to investment banking, you can go to a variety of different places. And I think a lot of different firms, a lot of different industries uh, face the same challenges. But having said all that, 
you know, I would share just a, a brief story. About 10 years ago, I found the person who I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And she actually ran money at, uh, at Putnam at the time. And it was very clear to me that it was time for me to be more transparent and open with um, my dear friend and also my boss and my other colleagues who I'd worked with for, gosh, nearly half my life. So I was in San Francisco at the time. I'd been there on a 18, basically an 18-year assignment, and I called my boss, and I told him I, I needed to talk to him. I was willing to fly to Boston to do it, to our headquarters. He said, you know, I'm going to a board meeting out in Los Angeles. Do you have time to catch up with me then? And I said, absolutely. Would love to do that. So it was at the then Hyatt Hotel, Avenue of the Stars in Century City. So we met for dinner, and um, I went to the bathroom to do my preparation for <laughs> for the conversation. And I had three cards in front of me. One card was with kind of the message of what I wanted to tell him. The second card was a whole list of other subjects that I could talk about if I wanted to pull the ripcord, you know, talk about the weather, traffic, stuff <laughs> like that. And the third thing was just a, a, a very brief resignation uh, pitch that I had. So I carried all three so I could pivot to wherever the conversation was going to go, and dessert came, and I still didn't have the courage to uh, tell him what was going on. Um, finally, I said, uh, Bill, Bill Connolly is his name, by the way, who I've worked had the pleasure and honor of working with for the last 15 years. I said, um, Bill, I wanted you to know that I found the person I wanted to spend the, the rest of my life with, and her name is, and the conversation went on from there. Within five minutes of, of getting it out on the table, he picked right up without hesitation and said, Kathy, I got to tell you, I'm so happy for you. Now tell me, how can I help? That was 10 years ago. Bill Connolly is five foot nine, 56 years old, offensive lineman from Dartmouth College football team, graduated undergrad uh, from Dartmouth, Tuck uh, graduate school. Uh, can drink Budweiser or Chardonnay, but prefers the former, um, can quote Shakespeare and do bond math all at the same time. This business has changed. And, uh, you know, as it relates to this issue, I think there are a lot of different firms with a lot of different approaches out there. There are firms that know it's happening as it relates to the issues going on with diversity, and they are hoping it goes away. There are firms that are out there that know it's happening and are talking about it. There are firms out there that are that know it's happening and are actually doing something about it. And then there are fewer firms still that are using it as an opportunity to lead. And that's exactly what we're doing at Putnam. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Absolutely. And, and that was a great story. And thank you for, for sharing it. So to that point, and a lot of what I'm hearing is kind of the messaging, right? And Sally is is certainly an expert on messaging and, and putting that word out there. And Sally, what I found interesting, especially in the context of some of the current news today, is the fact that you started your career at CBS News. That's CBS right. News with uh, some of the headlines recently, whether it was Charlie Rose or Les Moonves or, or others, um, there's been a lot of discussion whether that was a bit of a toxic uh, environment. I know having started there, you certainly have some thoughts about it. So if you could touch on that and touch on this idea of what we as an industry from a messaging perspective have to either change or adopt to become an attractive destination, not only for women, but others of diversity. Well, thanks, Ed. And this, what a great topic for us to be addressing today. 
Um, yeah, I spent five years at CBS News, and we've all, I'm sure, read some of the stories, and it was exactly that way when I worked there. I mean, just outrageous behavior to the point where there was no one to report it to because the head of the division was one of the worst offenders. So as a woman, you just felt constantly under attack, literally running away, physically running away, you know, trying to get away from these predatory men. So after five years of that, you know, I came to Wall Street and everyone said, oh, you know, we must see such, you know, sexism, what a toxic environment. And frankly, coming from CBS News, it, it didn't seem that bad to me because I was used to just a horrific, uh, very uh, destructive kind of environment. But um, so on Wall Street, uh, you know, I'd say I'm, I'm sure like every woman here in the room, I was used to being the only woman at the table on the committee. Um, so, you know, you're used to you're used to feeling underestimated. Um, and I think that's you get in a place where you over deliver and you have to be so much better in order to get the same treatment, to get the promotion um, and just having to prove yourself again and again and again. So, you know, I'm hoping things are getting better. I think they are getting better as there's more of a recognition that th the industry is going to be better if there's more inclusion. I mean, there's a, you know, there are a range of different clients, uh, women, people of all genders, people of all different makeups. So why on earth wouldn't the industry reflect that in terms of the advisors and the people on the industry side? Um, you know, one of the things is optics. I mean, talking about the socks, I just see even on LinkedIn, photo after photo of all white men playing golf. Um, you know, it just seems like, gosh, it just looks so out of date and out of touch. Maybe it's time that some of these firms start thinking about how they're presenting themselves in public. Um, when I was at, C at uh, Citigroup, um, you know, again, I, you know, I managed to do well there. But, you know, my first pregnancy, um, you know, after three weeks, I got a call saying that somebody was uh, taking my job away, that they were telling them that, I, that they, had, they, had, they were sitting in my seat doing my job and that if I didn't come back immediately, the job wouldn't be there. So I had to race back and then found out that a number of the men in my department had spread the rumor I wasn't coming back. So that kind of, you know, at a time when you're, you know, just recovering from having a child and then kind of under attack by your firm, um, you know, it just, the lack of support was pretty shocking. Um, you know, I do think that wouldn't happen today. I, I think there are now procedures and policies in place. But I think the industry, and I'm sure Penny can speak to this, could do a much better job talking to especially younger female employees about what a fantastic industry it is. And certainly Michelle can address this. What a fantastic career for somebody who wants a family. I mean, you know, once you have achieved a certain level of success, you've got flexibility. You can create your own schedule. Um, one of the top producers I knew at, at City uh, took off every summer uh, and, you know, just took the entire two and a half months off to spend with her children. It was reachable, but she was out of the office for two and a half months, and we all knew that, and she was a number one producer. So you can do it. Um, I think the industry needs to make a better effort in terms of doing that outreach and presenting themselves externally to make themselves more appealing to, to women. Wonderful. Thank you. And turning to Michelle for a moment... It's a shame, Michelle, I've had the great fortune now of knowing you for about five years, six years or so. Uh, it's always been a disappointment to me that you're not passionate about anything. <laughs> um, but yeah. with that being said, I've always considered you uh, a pioneer um, in our industry because you come from a pioneering family. 
Um, and I think it's a great story. If you could tell a little bit about um, your background, but also what drew you to the to the business, it was a very specific reason, and where you are in, in source. So uh, what drew me to the business was my mother, and that is somewhat rare. Um, my mom was a broker at Merrill Lynch in the late 70s, and she entered the business because she was in the middle of her second divorce from my stepfather, and she was um, she graduated college with her master's in special education, so she was a teacher because that's what you did when you were born in 1942. You were a teacher or a nurse, and especially coming from a Sicilian family, she's lucky she was allowed to work <laughs> because even when I got my first job at Merrill Lynch, my grandfather looked at me and said, how cute Mishy has a briefcase. <laughs> Mishy, right? Was like so not. So um, my mom, my cousin at the time was running government securities at Merrill. My mom was managing my stepfather's shoe store, opened a second location, opened a nursery school, and was raising my brother and I and my stepfather's four daughters. All of this at once in the 70s, still making baseball games, Little League and whatnot. So he said to her, you need to figure out how to make money. You need to have a job where you can create your own economic independence without depending on other people for a salary and a bonus. And you need to come interview at Merrill Lynch. Long story short, she did. I worked with her during the summers. I quickly realized that the business and the job, if you're on the advisory end of it, was not just sophisticated math that you had to be great at. You had to learn it. Of course, you had to depend on really smart people with economic backgrounds, but it took me, I wish I, I, it's, I wish now I could talk to myself then because a lot of what I believe makes somebody successful in this business is complete self-honesty yes. and self-reflection. And everybody has to figure out their superpower in life. But as an advisor, you have to know that we are all in the business of monetizing our personalities. That's what this is. Think about that conversation with women versus please enter the business into our training program and become a financial advisor. It's so different when you say, who's your group? Who do you influence? Who's your so How do we monetize you, Inc.? And when I really got that I could be better at this than anybody in my vertical sleeve, it's when I doubled and tripled. Before that, I was very stuck at $75 million in AUM. I was looking around my Merrill Lynch and my Payne Weber and my Wachovia offices constantly saying, why are they doing so much better than me? I know I'm as smart, but I actually know that I'm more magnetic. I love public speaking. I know that I'm great at seminars and attracting. And until I really figured out how to monetize my personality, my business did not change. And it took people that watched me in my branch, namely a branch manager who got it, that sat me down and said, pick one idea because you have 10 great ones a day. Pick one great one, align it with you, and go for it, and I'll support that. And so, you know, my mom and I had this joke back at Merrill. Every conference we went to, we would go to the ladies' room, and the toilet paper was still folded in a little triangle because there were no men. There were no women using the ladies' room. 
None. No line. No line. Now, at least, there's a little line. (laughs) I don't rarely, I rarely get a triangle folded. So there's a more volume, but, you know, there's a, you can say something and it's not aligned with your energy. And and my best advice to anybody listening that wants to attract women, develop women, retain women in finance is you better beware of your energetic eye roll because women are intuitive beings. We are way more emotionally intelligent than men. We pick up on body language. We pick up on cues. We watch people's reactions. I can tell what you're thinking and if you really have faith in me or not by just your energy and how you're stiffening your body. You have to be aware of not only what you believe your top layer culture is. Okay, great. You have 40% women employed at your company. Do you know how they feel? Do they believe that you trust them as a leader? Are they just placeholders? Are they just millennial women? Millennial women are very different and have a different power balance than senior women and what we've all been through. So beware of the energetic eye roll. Beware. You have a shadow culture, and that shadow culture is not female-friendly. You have to even watch how you're presenting something to a client. If I see one more hunting or fishing analogy, <laughs> I'm going to trip somebody. When you're presenting to a female RIA, get rid of the hunting and fishing analogies, right? So it's the the little daily stuff. It's the energetic eye roll, which is very subtle and passive aggressive, but women pick up on this. It's super important to really look at this and and test for it in your culture. Well, I, that, those are great thoughts and Don't insights. Don't roll your eyes up. I'm not. See it. I'm not <laughs> he's rolling my eyes now. He's petrified. Poor I'm, petrified. I'm, I'm actually. We got thinking him in a corner now. <laughs> we should have retitled this when toilet paper tells a story. Yes, I know that story. Toilet paper. Uh, yes. I, I would have been there. But to your last point, Michelle, and I'm, I'm going to turn to Penny uh, now. You re- reference this millennial woman, um, and Penny is certainly the embodiment of uh, of both. She is a successful, energetic, smart woman, but also kind of fills that millennial role as well. So, Penny, turning to you, did you always want to come on to Wall Street? Um, and and if you did, how did you kind of make that first entree? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting question because the answer is, you know, I, I didn't know. I, I relate to so much of, of what Michelle said. I come from a Greek family of Greek immigrants. And so no one in my family worked on Wall Street or was in business or had any, you know, white collar job. We were, you know, small business owners, diners, some some of us, but, you know, small businesses. Uh, So but I I vividly remember uh, being a young girl and I have an older sister. And while she was playing with dolls and lining them up and pretending to be a kindergarten teacher, which she now is, I was ruffling papers and pretending to make deals happen, whatever that meant. And I, I remember our cousins lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and we'd do the drive from Queens, New York, and I'd see the city building, Citibank building in Long Island City. And I remember always thinking, I have to work on the highest floor of that building. So somewhere it was in me to do something in this business. Um, but I didn't know what that was. And it wasn't until I went into college, and um, like Michelle, I do, don't do mind a public speaking and so I would do a lot of speaking and someone in the audience of one of my speeches said you know you should go into sales 
And it was the CEO of New York Life, Cy Sternberg, if you're listening. Thank you so much. But he, he introduced me into um, my career. And so I started in uh, sales for Mainstay Investments, which was a subsidiary of New York Life. And my career quickly went in down the consulting path, which um, obviously I'm still in today. But, you know, I think what I what I did have and why I relate so much to what Michelle just said about self-awareness and knowing yourself, what I did realize I have was um, uh, no fear. So uh, I didn't really listen to the rules, which worked in my favor because I followed my own path. And just a determination to kind of win. So that competitiveness worked really well for me, you know, in the business early on. And, and knowing that, um, that was all I really needed, even though I didn't, I didn't know much about finance at the time. Wonderful. And, uh, and welcome. We were glad you were ruffling those papers yeah. and, and, yes. uh, and playing business while yes. your sister was playing teacher. Um, Turning to the other side of the equation to Michelle's comment about millennials, because I also think we as an industry are not positioning ourselves as an attractive destination for millennials. And I know that you believe that a lot of those things that would attract millennials are the same things that would attract you know, women to our industry. So if you can talk about that from that perspective a little bit, I think it would be helpful. Yes, for sure. And and. Michelle and and Sally have both said something that um, a couple things that really struck a chord with me. So, I think what we know and we know this statistically because we've polled women and millennials and we know this information about um, people, but we also know it through our own experiences. Both women and millennials have a desire, I think, to have flexibility in the way in which they build not only their careers, but their daily life. Um, having a work-life balance is something that's meaningful to both the millennial group and, and the women group. Um, having the ability to collaborate with others, to have experiences that rely not only on technical knowledge, but on emotional intelligence and the way in which we perceive the world. All these things are important to both of these groups. And what I believe is happening in the industry today that's preventing both of these groups from having full access to financial services as a career path is firms are saying that they're welcoming to women and millennials. However, it is still an eat-what-you-kill culture. Advisors, local leadership um, in the field are still paid on an eat-what-you-kill type of culture. It's still not popular to say out loud, hey, I wouldn't mind building a career in which I can take Fridays off because I want to attend my kids' soccer games. That's not popular. That's not sexy. What's sexy in our industry still is the harder you work, the more hours you put in, the more you grind yourself into the ground, the faster you run on the treadmill, the more you hate your life by the end of the day, the more successful you are. And I see this working with advisors and their teams day in and day out, and I've seen it for the past 10 years. That is still the rhetoric. Um, so if firms don't start, and this is not going to be a popular statement, but I believe it's true. If firms don't stop rewarding advisors and, um, you know, providing these different achievement letters, based levels rather, based solely on activity rather than um, allowing advisors to create their own success metrics, then it's never going to change. And so I think it's okay for women to say, 
Um, you know, I want to build my day and my path and my career differently. And it's not until firms start accepting that and shifting their own belief structures that that's uh, actually ever going to happen. And, right, to take that a step further as I'm sitting here yeah, shaking nodding. my yes, head up right. and down and feeling C1 and C2 popping <laughs> out, um, it's making sure that within a company, I don't care if it's big or small, Yes, flexibility is super important and necessary to women, but how do you then make sure you help execute a strategic plan to get there in your own way? That's right. And I think strategic planning has to change. Mm -hmm. And and it, it is rhetoric, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It is frowned upon to leave early yes. or to want to work from home. Mm -hmm. It's still frowned upon. It's still an energetic eye roll like... We're working so hard. Yeah. Guess what? I work at 5.30 in the morning, and then I don't work between 7 and 7.45 because I have a special needs son, and I've got to get him energetic ready for his day. And then I'm back on the grid, and then I'm on and off the grid in my own way. But I have a strategic plan that works for me and how I'm going to hit numbers and how I'm going to market and how I'm going to do everything. Companies and people inside companies need to figure out a different strategic planning process to help you in your own way. And Ed, can I jump in for just one second? And it's interesting because I think what Michelle is hitting on is urgent. 45% of our workforce at Putnam Investments is millennial. If we don't get them, shame on us. Mm -hmm. Shame on us. They bring, and we couldn't be more bullish on the generation. I'm with one of our our many of the of the millennial population that we have at the firm. I'm with one of them actually today. They bring a maturity that, frankly, I didn't have at their age when I entered the workforce. I didn't know what culture meant. They know what culture is. Michelle, I think you talked about shadow cu culture. They have a complete... 360 lens into the culture that's at any firm. But I think the important thing is this authentic alignment that both Penny and Michelle just talked about. What we're trying to do is make sure that they're authentically aligned in their pathway. And it could be a very untraditional pathway, but they want to be open to as many opportunities as, as they possibly can. So we couldn't be more bullish on the, on the generation. They also need to understand the why. What is the business and what is the why? We're in the business that's singular in focus. It's the business of changing people's lives. Changing people's lives. When they, when they get that, they get on board. Meaning retiring with dignity. Being able to realize philanthropic dreams. Educate your, your children. And turn money into meaning. If they understand and embody those things every single day, um, th they couldn't contribute more. They couldn't contribute more. And frankly, they're our succession plan. We, are a ma we have a major problem with advisors based on age. and They are our succession plan. I'm 54 years old. I've got 70% of my companies under age 30. They are happy. They are engaged. The path to partnership, frankly, I tell them, I'm 54. Do the math. When do you think I'm going to retire? Not at 70. This is for you. Everything I did wrong, everything I did right is right in front of you. The vision that I have created for them, it's also creating a buy-in for them that it's their company too, and that's making them 
bring themselves to the office very differently because I've given them the clear vision of this can be yours. Um, I'm professionally developing them. I'm encouraging them to make a lot of mistakes. It's collaborative, and it's really got to be. The, they, they are the succession plan. Well, Michelle, you're you're an anomaly in this, and I'll say that because there are many, many advisors in the industry that struggle with passing on the the legacy, and they do because they are of the belief system. And I don't blame advisors for this who have who grinded on their own, hunted and, and rainmaked as solopreneurs and built businesses, and now they're saying, "Look at these." lazy millennials who get to <laughs> reap the benefits of everything I worked my, you know, behind, uh, you know, off of to build. And so I, I think it's, if we can get the founders of these firms um, in some way more comfortable with the idea that it, the world has changed and perhaps this next gen isn't going to have to work the way in which you worked, but does have the ability to really creatively take over your business and build it into something really exceptional. It's that belief system specifically that has to evolve. And it hasn't for a lot of advisors, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I was, um, you know, thinking the men, I think, that are in some of the key positions, you know, I don't think they have evil intent. I just think they don't understand. They just can't relate at all because I think still so many of them have stay-at-home wives. And everything's taken care of, for, of, you know, of their needs. And, you know, they see no issue with taking a Wednesday off on a sunny day to go play golf, but then are enraged if a woman wants to go to her children's Christmas play. Um, it's just this kind of double standard, hypocritical kind of attitude. Um, so I think it's just a lack of awareness. Um, there's a couple of recent articles that came out recently that are relevant here. One is that um, women do three times the amount of work at home. So that is taking care of children, taking care of the house, just in charge of everything, um, you know, at, at home, three times the amount of work. Um, and that's just not acknowledged in the workplace. Um, and, you know, other articles, you know, just talk about how men are in the wealth management business are now saying maybe we shouldn't hire women. It's too scary. You know, there's, they're concerned about, you know, feeling uncomfortable or it's just not worth dealing with it. And you, again, you just think that is so out of touch. They're the answer, actually, for the future, um, women and millennials. Um, right. You know, it's the most aggravating thing to me as a working single mother. All of a sudden, it's super cute that dad is an engaged father leaving for the play. <laughs> I've been doing that for 17 freaking years. And all of a sudden, I'm going to do a cartwheel because you're an engaged father? Like, are you kidding me? And this is being put out there like, look, we've got these great men who are engaged fathers and they're going to doctor's appointments with their wives. Well, Good for you. Good for you. And we can't leave. Okay, well, I'm, I'm a little irritated. Right <laughs> okay. I'm going to uh, breathe yoga. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, as I said again for our listeners, Michelle has not yet developed passion. Yeah, right. Um, as, as is clear. But I think this is a great discussion. And I think if we look at the other side of the ledger in our business, we're talking about attracting women and millennials and a diverse workforce to our industry as, as kind of the future. But the flip side of that ledger are the clients, right? Statistically, about $18 trillion is gonna transfer hands 
over the next five years, whether it is a transition from the baby boomer, the greatest generation, to Gen X or Gen Y, or, as Michelle knows very well, transferring as a result of, of divorce. And I think to all of your points, unless we change our profile to the industry or those firms that would otherwise might be the recipients don't change their profile, we're going to have a challenge. And I think um, we're looking at that challenge being pure technology, if we don't change, or it's going to be those firms that, that kind of get it. So give me some thoughts around that. Yeah, I'll start. Um, so two things, and someone said this eloquently earlier, the teams in financial services need to reflect what the future holder of wealth looks like, period. I mean, it, you know, you can't have a, a team of all white middle-aged men, no offense, Ed Friedman, um, it, it, serving clients that look and act and think very differently. And I think what we know about the holder of wealth of today moving forward is they view their wealth management needs differently than the wealth holder did in the past. And Michelle, I'll ask you to comment on that if you've seen that shift. What I've seen with teams that I work with is that the consumer of today, especially that millennial wealth holder who's going to inherit that 18 to 30 trillion in assets, thinks about the today more than they do about the future. And what I mean by that is the wealth holder of generations past thought about their goals from a quantitative standpoint. How do I save as much as possible so maybe hopefully I can retire and take that vacation when I'm 65? The wealth holder of today is thinking much more about how can I live life to the fullest? And you're seeing this reflected in the marketing messages of firms that are talking about, you know, live for today. And, you know, millennials are concerned not with can I save so that I can go away when I'm 80. They're thinking about I have a week break. Can I go to Thailand and, you know, spend a week hiking? And so wealth management needs, the, the way people are viewing what they want to do with their money and wealth is different. And advisors need to have folks on their team or themselves need to evolve to understand those needs of clients. Michelle, would you agree with that? Oh, I, I, so I do, we do one thing um, when a woman gets divorced. So much of the divorce process, right, and this is that eight part of the 18 trillion and a lot of the 18 trillion because, frankly, all marriages end. They're either going to end somebody died or you got divorced. So you got widows and you got divorcees who never dealt with their money and they're not likely going to use the former advisor because they had zero relationship with them until the divorce was announced. And now the Merrill Lynch advisor is like, let me know how we can help you when they <laughs> haven't spoken to you in a decade. Thank you very much. Moving right along. So it, what, what I say to women, because so much of their divorce is about the assets are getting cut in half. You don't work. You don't own your, you don't earn your own income. This is it. I always tell them this is the earliest retirement plan you're going to have because you might be getting your assets at age 51, not retiring at 65. So you're, you're in this kind of scarcity wrapper of what you're not going to have and how, how scary it is. And what I allow them to do at the end of their divorce, I say, okay, what's our splurge mm. with guardrails? And most of them are taking their children, their adult children on a phenomenal vacation and they're all sending me pictures of them and their kids on that vacation and they I am giving them the permission to do that with their millennial children and that is 
that is the now with the mindfulness of later as well. And 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 the, you're right. We have to help incorporate the feel good now with the don't blow it up later. And it can be done. That's yes. what financial planning is. Right. The words have to change. The process has to change. The strict rules, the words have to be completely flipped on its head. And there's a lot in that for this business, and truly. The industry needs to follow exactly what Michelle said. I mean, at, as an industry, we get enough for galvanizing relationships on where the money is going. It's that simple. And what a brilliant, by the way, Michelle, way to do that. Brilliant. Well, I think that your point's well taken. I mean, our industry, which has been around for a very long time, we first started with the Depression era where you never spent anything. You went through life very skeptical. You kept money under the mattress. And then each successive generation viewed money and wealth differently and we have had to evolve as an industry to to kind of meet that social norm. Question is, are we doing it uh, today? Uh, and what's it going to take? Sally, uh, what I find interesting is you are the mother of two young millennial women beginning their business careers. What, if any, advice from all of your experience in the past have you given them? Yeah, it's interesting, um, you know, because I obviously worked the whole time um, I was raising them, and, you know, you sort of wonder what the impact is going to be, and each of them has come back to me, and they're now in their 20s, and they've said, we're going to just keep on working like you, Mom, and, you know, if we get engaged, if we get married, it may be that our husbands stay at home, but we're going to keep working. So you realize you leave this legacy of this work ethic and wanting to control their own you know, financial future. So it's it's quite heartening to see how ambitious and leaning in they are uh, and making decisions based on, you know, keeping that career going. We're in a really interesting period of time, I think, in our country. Um, I was going to say at first we're seeing a subtle cultural change, but I think when we go through this last election uh, that occurred and the record amount of women that ran for office, the record amount of women that won uh, office. Is that a great kickstart to what we need to be doing as an industry? And can we take some uh, examples or lessons from that going forward? It's time. I, I'm glad there's a shift. Yeah, anything helps. You know, a sea change helps. You know, it does to me feel that we're at an inflection point. We hit it. But it's now what? And and I hate I, I would hate for this to be sort of this overarching, you know, go girl go. It's more the day to day. What are we doing to set women up for success in any industry where there's energetic gender bias? There's out there gender bias. What are we doing with our marketing materials, with our sales pitches, with our office design? Right. I. My female clients don't want to walk in and see mahogany and dead white presidents and horses. They don't. They want to see cool stuff. I have aromatherapy. You walk in, you know. We share some office space. You smell orange blossom and sage. It's awesome. We have olfactory nerves. It changes your mood. People are in a panic about their money a lot. So for me, it's kind of sensible that my office has to be set up to de-escalate, de not escalate. So you know, sit in your sit in the chair that you ask your client to sit in a couple of times a month. What are they looking at? Sit in the conference room from your client's view. What are they looking at? 
How do you feel if you can change that and say, wow, what am I looking at? Am I looking at a lot of certificates of the advisor? Or are I looking at images that are about, for, for my clientele, moving forward positively? I have different seating areas. I've got one room that's got crystals, a picture on the wall that says, just breathe, life goes on, and a couch, right? Sometimes we need a little time out from this, the serious money stuff. Sit in the chair that you expect physically your client to sit in. What are they looking at and what are you telling them? And I'll add from the, the, the other side of it, women who want to get into this business or you know work in the, the corporate side of the business, self-awareness is the most underrated skill, I think, and, and probably the most important skill you can have in this industry, period, end of story. And I think knowing yourself, especially as a young 20-something coming into this business, ladies who are graduating college or just exited and want to enter the business, take extra steps to know yourself. You get into this business and you're told you immediately need a mentor. You need somebody to show you the way and bring you under their wing. And I was always of the philosophy of, I don't necessarily need that. Um, it would be nice if I can find somebody that could really help guide me, but um, I, I took a DISC profile. If anybody's mm -hmm. of the DISC theory, I love um, DISC. It's useful in my work. But I also took one for myself very early on. And it's funny. I think I told you this story, Ed. One of the first red flags to me that I should leave a specific role in organization I was in was because I scored very differently than every single person in the room I was in, in a, a leadership you know, workshop I was doing. And I said to myself, if I have, if I score as only 3% of people do ever, then I need to utilize that. And so it was much more about me knowing myself than about anybody telling me what I should be doing. And so my, my advice to women would be um, know yourself and have, a, a, you know, little to no fear of what's possible because it, it really is possible, but you, you have to know yourself and almost double down on, on what your strengths are. And if you don't feel that you really can know yourself yet, here's how you can find out who yourself is. Ask three people that know you very well what they would say your biggest strength is. Mm -hmm. You're going to hear something familiar. Ask three people. That's right. And, it, and, and start to do your own self-research. That's right, yes. If you're not feeling strong enough, trusting of yourself enough, you know, not everybody is going to be the women in this room. That's right. Where somehow we came out of the womb and we were like, we got that's this. Right. right? Yes. Like I played, my Barbie doll was a baseball bat. Yeah, that's right. Like, right? I grew up with 11 boys. I'm very comfortable at fraternity parties. Like not every woman is that. You're and right. so with a briefcase, <laughs> Mishy, cute, but a cute briefcase. Um, ask people what they would say your biggest strength is. When you start to hear a theme, right? That man, the CEO that said, go into sales, he was a silent mentor. That's right. He was seeing yes. something in you mm -hmm. that you didn't quite know yet. It somehow aligned with, wow, that's why I want the top floor of the Citibank right. with the shuffling papers when you're five and doing deals, right? But he, it resonated that's right. and it clicked. Women also need to trust that when they hear something that resonates and clicks, your inner voice is trying to tell you something follow that one extra step. You're spot on. And and so I'll add to that. Uh, and then quickly do an about face if somebody tells you something that's the antithesis of that. A quick story. I did have somebody, I've always been mistaken for, 
you know, the, the, the marketing girl or the administrative assistant where, you know, I'm a CEO and president of a company. I've been a VP of an organization. And so um, when somebody would say to me, well, you should maybe look into this marketing job or this relationship management job. Um, those are the people that I said, thank you so much. Never going to listen to anything they have to say again because they don't really know me and my strengths. So, yes, you're right. And it they is, don't want to. And, and you're absolutely right. And Penny, you told a great story um, about somebody who took the time to send you a message That's through right. your website. That's right. After seeing your picture, if you could just kind of recount that a bit. <laughs> yeah, so not not too long ago. Earlier this year, um, I started a business and I had someone write into the website, literally take the time to type a message, an advisor, and say, "You look far too young to be taken seriously doing this. Um, why would I ever hire you?" And I uh, and I've said this to you, Ed. I've faced far more ageism in this business than I have sexism. And to me, um, it was indicative of somebody who had belief systems that were so, you know, in the past, this this idea that if you're young in this business, you can't possibly have, you know, the knowledge or wisdom to, to teach somebody else something. And I commend firms that are big on reverse mentoring, because I think there's a ton that people who've been in the business a long time can learn from younger folks. And something we know statistically is that if you have high levels of EQ, emotional intelligence, it is far more important to have high EQ than to have a high number of years of service in the business and low EQ. In other words, if you've been doing this 40 years and you're not self-aware with no EQ, guess what? You're probably not going to make it the next 10 years. And that's the reality. So so when you talk about that, Kathy, I think it's interesting what Putnam is doing and and from our conversations, they seem to be a leader on the diversity. And there was a great phrase that you used about the pace of change. Mm -hmm. If you could touch on that and touch on how Putnam kind of views this, because we're going to need the large firms, the industry-leading firms, to start to change the way that they view and that they position themselves in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I just think we, no matter how long you've been in the business, you can look at it right now and you can say to yourself that change has never happened this fast and it will never be this slow again. And it, you can think about that across any element, foundational element of our business. And I think on this particular topic of diversity, and you've heard, I could I could listen to these four women <laughs> forever, by the way, um, three women. Uh, but if you take a look at it, there's no silver bullet. And that's the approach that we've taken at Putnam. It's a lot of different things. We're firm believers in the power of the mundane edge doing the basics, those little things that if you layer them and augment them, there is a huge multiplying effect that happens as a result. So just, I'll just run through a few things that we're doing. Number one, we have a diversity and inclusion officer at the firm. We've had that for years. Their sole purpose is to make sure that we're doing everything possible to attract, develop, retain, promote, sponsor diversity, not just women, diversity across the organization. We've have a, had a women's leadership group since the early 90s at the firm. This is not a new topic, certainly not a new topic. These are all things that we've done in terms of those uh, tenants that I just talked about in developing training and so forth, and to make sure that women especially have a place to convene, to network and speak to each other and to understand different parts of, of the business. We do a lot on the recruiting front at the firm, specifically 
specifically, and one of my the areas of my responsibility is to our early career program. We've targeted five campuses um, where where we've sort of declared our major, if you will. Some schools in New England, some in other parts of the country. But we are going. Not only are we going to job fairs to recruit, we're getting into classrooms. We are teaching. We are going to conferences. We are doing mentor programs. We're getting to this talent, this human capital early because they're getting placed earlier in their careers than we've ever seen uh, before. We also have had a huge a huge initiative across our partner firms uh, on this whole topic of women in investing. We have two modules that we've worked on extensively. One is a, call it a client or shareholder version of women in investing, but the other is teaching advisors how to address I hate to say it, especially in this room, but how to address this cohort and this segment. Uh, we've also done a number of things from a corporate perspective in the area of um, we're, we're members of the Boston Women's Compact, which is all about equal pay. Um, there's a lot of legislation that's been happening in a variety of just different states across the country, just being sponsoring and being part of the solution in that regard. So, um, you know, it's not one thing. There's no silver bullet, but you come compound all of those initiatives together, and we're taking this content and our playbook out to our partner firms, that's where you can really make a difference. But the one thing that I will say is this isn't an issue that belongs in HR. The biggest way, the most impact that people can have across any industry, any firm, is to own it and do something about it. We should be better at hiring people like us. When we go on campus, and I'm doing a lot of these meetings myself, but I, I say, send our millennial cohort. They're the future of the business. They're the ones who they can identify with. Everybody should they own their piece of it. And I think sometimes we get in these conversations, there, there is this proverbial, sometimes it's an eye roll, right? But there's got to be ownership and people actually have to invest and do it themselves, not outsource it. Mm -hmm. This is something that all of us own. I mean, basically, the, the wealth management industry will change and you can fight it every step of the way or you can get in front of it and be a leader and embrace inclusion. But it will change. There's no question about it. But if you wait and drag and fight it, you're going to end up like the wave of women that came into the government and what's happening with CBS News and other firms um, where you're forced to change legally. Mm -hmm. I think those are great points. And in preparation for today, um, I almost introduced Michelle as one of the top women advisors in the industry. And I stopped myself and I actually because my emotional intelligence is increasing, certainly hanging around you ladies. Um, I'm doing a not-so-energetic eye roll. There you go. Um, made me think that if we as an industry continue to put that label ahead of it, right, or make it gender, I would never think of sitting here and introduce a male advisor saying he's one of the top male advisors right. in the industry. I'd say he's yeah. one of the top advisors. So I think, you know, Kathy, kind of to your point, that, the, the thinking has to change, the, the nomenclature, the, the way that we talk about each of us in the industry has to get to the point where we drop that label at some point. 
Ed, I, I agree. I speak at, you know, tons of events in the industry and am oftentimes asked to speak at women's events. And I w remember one client asking, well, how are you going to change the message or what's going to be your framing of the, the talk for women business owners? And I said, exactly the same message I give to male business owners because they're business owners. And so, you know, that that's indicative to me about how firms view their own advisor field force, that we somehow need to either dumb down the message or, you know, make it so that women, let's make it a little more touchy-feely so women can understand. And the reality is, if you're a business owner, you're a business owner. And practice management is about concept and about behavioral change. And my message is the same. So for me, I I, I hate when I, when I see or hear that there's this incredible divide between you know, women and the rest of the industry, uh, especially in the financial advisor field force. Michelle, I'm sure you've <laughs> experienced yeah. that. I mean, I, I remember last year at the Olympics, I loved when Lindsey Vaughn literally looked at the broadcaster who was interviewing, and she's like, you know what I'm really sick of? How everyone starts the question with, what's it feel like to be the best female? She goes, I want to be the best skier. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's right. it's pervasive, right? And and to your point, and and what I said earlier, this isn't just some global thing that has to happen at the top. This is every single day, Ed. When you're in your office or you're visiting, if you hear somebody doing that, you pull them aside and say, "Wow, we have to like totally re-listen to how we're." And you've got to get involved on the spot, right? Let's also not miss the middle layer of women. We've got two ends of the spectrum in this room. There are a ton of women in their 30s and 40s that are sitting there that can be a closer generation to the millennials. Let's make sure they're engaged and they have the flexibility. I feel like those women are getting lost in companies and financial services because they were sort of right on that weird cusp. And now they're sitting not feeling quite enough power. Maybe they're not elevated enough. Maybe they're not being tapped enough and they don't exactly know how. You know, we're kind of viewed as well. You guys kind of figured it out in the 80s. That was so long ago. You're sort of cutting edge. There's a middle layer of 30 and 40-year-old women that have to start to be taken seriously and, and elevated and their voices need to be heard. That's great. So as we wrap up here, and this has been a really fun conversation, I won't say necessarily to participate in, but certainly to uh, to listen to. And I've learned an awful lot. Um, coming back to kind of how we kicked off uh, the podcast when I asked uh, Penny to finish the story of, of that event up in, uh, in Boston, I will share with you that at dinner I did ask Penny what it's going to take for our industry to change. And her comment was, and she meant it in only the nicest and sweetest way, for us old, white, middle-aged guys to move on, um, either through retirement or other uh, methods. I believe I said time, time is what it's going to take. But but it sounds to me like um, listening to all of your great thoughts, stories, anecdotes, and, uh, and pieces of advice, that that change is happening. Um, and that, and again, Kathy, I love that phrase that, you know, change has never happened this fast and will never be this slow uh, in the future. So as we close, I'm going to ask each and every one of you to give two pieces of advice um, or an idea, if you will. One to those that are near the top of the industry and will help set the direction for all of these firms like Putnam, uh, who is certainly uh, progressive. And then number two, 
to that young millennial or that young woman or that young diverse candidate coming into the industry how they should approach their career on Wall Street and why, quite frankly, it is a great career to, uh, to pursue. So, Michelle, I'll start with you. I would say to the younger, uh, the millennial, um, we're all in the business of monetizing our personalities. Figure out what you should be monetizing. If you don't know your strengths yet, ask people what they think you're great at and trust your intuition and your inner voice. What was the other question? To the leaders of the industry today, how do we change that thinking, that messaging directionally to become more attractive to women, to millennials, to diverse candidates, and set that firm on the right path? I think we've answered that. I think we've answered that, but it really, to me, comes down to daily observing what's going on in your company if you're the leader. It can be sitting next to somebody. It could be what's being said at lunch. It's watch where you exclude, not include. Mm -hmm. Sally? Um, I'd say for the sort of senior um, people, I'd, I think among senior women, it's great to band together because we now have more and more women that are in senior positions across the industry, maybe at not one uh, individual firm. But I think women banding together, um, I just felt so alone most of my career uh, with no support at all and you know having alone deal with very complicated situations, being the only woman in the room. I think now, again, we, you know, it, there's strength in numbers, and as women, we can stand up and say, we don't want to be treated this way. We believe this should be the career track for women. There should be more opportunities. So I think it's time to kind of step up and own that uh, power. And for up-and-coming women, I would just, I just think, again, this is what a fantastic industry for more women, young women, to consider. And it's not even on the radar screen of the young women I know um, that are friends of my daughters. I mean, it just, it, it's not a consideration. Uh, they just are intimidated by it, and it just doesn't look that welcoming. Um, so whatever we can do to make that a more welcoming um, industry and encourage more and more women to join in because there's so many great opportunities. It's flexible. It's well compensated if you're good at it. Um, you know, what a fantastic career you can have. Penny? So to the younger uh, younger gen, younger women, and really for, for anyone wanting to come into the business, it is, it's know yourself. I, I talked about this earlier and know your worth. It, it was never popular back in the day to leave an organization. You, you know, the, the, the longer you stayed, the more you put up with the you-know-what of an organization, the tougher you were. And that's just not the case anymore. Be okay with walking away from a place that's not a good cultural fit for you. Um, there's no, I think, the, there's no stigma around that anymore. The stigma has, has lowered, and I certainly have felt very comfortable doing that numerous times. <laughs> and so it, you have to be okay with that, and some of that comes from really taking time to know yourself. For the leaders of organizations, I would say if you are committing to evolving, to changing, to being more diverse, it has to be more than just saying it. It has to be more than just updating your marketing. It has to be a commitment to changing infrastructure, to changing the way in which advisors build career paths and join teams and get compensated and the way in which leaders get compensated. I mean, everything has to change. And if you're really committed to having a diverse workforce, then you have to commit to doing, you know, the, the, the grunt work that comes along with that. It also sounds like as you're thinking about gifts to get your daughter um, staples, maybe, instead of uh, Fisher-Price. 
uh, <laughs> might be the way to go. Definitely. And, and Kathy? So I know that one of the themes here has been know, right? Know yourself. Um, I would just expand that slightly. And uh, this is directly from my boss because he talks about these three important things all the time. Know yourself. And we talked about that, this whole idea of authentic alignment. Number two, know your stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. You got to be competent. Right. And because that drives confidence. Right. And know who cares. Know who your advocates are. Who's going to sponsor you? Who's going to support you? And building that advocacy is so important. That requires face-to-face interaction, making relationships and expanding your relationships and making them very personal. So those are the three things for anybody entering the business and uh, and everybody at Putnam who's listening to this podcast would know those three, th- three things very well. As for leaders, all around the world – we have stepped into a bull market in the business of leadership. And I would just ask leaders to do their job, and that is to lead with their voice, with their actions, with their sponsorship, with the whole idea of taking risk, right? I think for some, you can get a little paralyzed in here because everything's so viral now, everything's so transparent. But Leaders in here have to lead, and especially in an arena like this on the topics that we've discussed today. And, Ed, I just want to compliment you again on all the work that you did to pull us together and pull the themes together. Um, This was such a pleasure, and my hope is we can stay in touch and maybe do version 2.0 if we have a little reunion with, uh, with my colleagues here. Well, and I appreciate that. And and I think 2.0 is a great idea. I don't think, you know, a 45 or 50 minute podcast is going to say it, solve uh, the problem. But certainly on uh, behalf of myself and Dynasty Financial Partners, I want to thank each and every one of you for participating in what has been a lively discussion. I think it's been an important discussion. And I want to thank you for your stories, your insights, your thoughts, and more importantly, your candor. And I'd like to thank everybody else for listening. Uh, we look forward to, uh, to having you join us on future podcasts. And uh, if you have any interest in connecting with any of these fabulous, uh, I have to use the label, women, um, certainly you can contact us through Dynasty Financial Partners. So again, thank you and, uh, and appreciate the thoughts. I want to thank our guests for their great comments and insight, and I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. I hope you found today's episode entertaining, informative, and helpful. And if you have any comments, questions, or would like to connect with Dynasty or any of our guests, please contact us at podcast at dynastyfp.com. That's podcast at dynastyfrankpeter.com. We look forward to you joining us on our next podcast, and until then, Remember, at Dynasty, we live our American dream by helping you realize your American dream.